Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Acts 17, 16-34 is our text today. Um, many thanks to Pastor Brian for bringing the word to us uh, last week. We took a short break last week from a sermon series on the core values of this church, and that's what we are continuing to do today. Uh, let me explain to you where we've been, where we're going. Um, <clears throat> sermon series on our core values is an attempt to explain to you what we are passionate about, what we seek to excel at here at New Life. We first of all looked at the core value called ordin- uh, adoration, which has to do with worship. We value worship. We think worship's very important. After that, we considered belonging, which has to do with forming community, friendships, relationships, connecting to one another. Uh, we went from there to look at compassion. That has to do with our mercy ministries to the community and our efforts to help the needy among us. And then we proceeded to consider discipleship, the way in which we seek to grow as disciples and um, increase in maturity in our faith and knowledge of our Savior. Now today we are talking about the last of the five core values, which is evangelism. But what we're going to do is give this some extended treatment. We're going to take four Sundays to talk just about evangelism. So we're kind of finishing one short series and transitioning into a new series, and this new series is called this. We're going to talk about telling the truth in a postmodern age. Now, you might ask, why, why four sermons on evangelism and not four sermons on, on the other values? I want you to know that that's not because I think evangelism is more important than the other core values, but I do think evangelism is probably the most challenging of the four values. It's probably the the value that makes us all the most nervous and uncomfortable uh, for a number of reasons. I think a lot of us hesitate to share the gospel with others, to tell people how to be saved, to talk about Jesus with people. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this, I think. I mean, number one, a lot of us just feel very inadequate, don't we? We just feel underprepared to be able to talk to people about the gospel? What if they ask us questions that we don't know how to answer? Uh, some of us are unsure even how to explain the gospel. I want to say, first of all, if you feel inadequate, I want to encourage you. That's a good sign because you are inadequate, <laughs> and so am I. Uh, we are all inadequate to deal with these matters, but that just means we have to depend all the more on the power of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of His Word to bring people to faith. So that's a good sign if you feel inadequate. It's a sign of humility and dependence upon you. But still, it's something that makes us hesitate to share the gospel. Um, Another reason that we might be slow to share the gospel is our current cultural situation. Um, We live in a time where truth is not valued as it once was. Uh, It's even being questioned whether truth even exists. Uh, There's a high rate of biblical illiteracy in our culture. I heard a story recently of a woman who had a cross around her neck. She was walking uh, downtown somewhere, and someone came up and asked her, why do you have a plus sign hanging around your neck? 
Uh, that's the kind of biblical illiteracy, illiteracy that we're dealing with in our age. We live in what is called a postmodern age. That's what a lot of observers are calling it. <clears throat> and so that's why I've chosen that term for the title. We're not going to talk about postmodernism today, but we will get into that a little bit so that we can seek to understand the cultural situation that we live in. But that contributes to making us hesitate about sharing the gospel. Uh, there's also just a generally negative public stigma about sharing the gospel. I mean, all of you know what it's like to get that phone call at dinner time uh, from the salesperson who's trying to get you to sign up for this or that or, or buy this thing or that thing. And we can't help but kind of link evangelism to that pushy salesperson. And we don't want to be that guy. I mean, who are we to go to somebody else and tell them what they should think and what they should believe and how they should live doesn't that seem presumptuous? And that makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to be that kind of person. And so we hesitate. Well, here's what we're going to do. There's a number of other reasons I'm sure you could come up with why evangelism might make you uncomfortable. We're going to spend four Sundays examining seven principles of evangelism. These principles come from a guy named Jerem Bars, who was one of my professors at Covenant Seminary. And all of these principles come from Acts chapter 17, the passage that Julia just read to us. And so that's going to be our passage for four straight Sundays. We're just going to read that every Sunday and focus on different parts of that passage as we look at these seven principles. So really what this is is a very long sermon, a seven-point sermon that we're going to divide into four Sundays. And today we're just going to consider the first two uh, of these principles. Um, but, but first of all, let me <clears throat> deal with a, a question that maybe some of you are, are having. We, we do here, we value evangelism, but uh, some of you might be wondering exactly who it is who's called to evangelize. Uh, it could be that some of you think that evangelism is only for the elite Christians, the really super mature Christians, the pastors, the elders, uh, the crew, staff people. Um, missionaries, those are the ones called to do evangelism, but not me. Uh, Now, it's true that there are some who are gifted in evangelism more than others. There are those who will do it more. I I don't think we all will be evangelizing to the same degree as everybody else. But I want to show you that it is the responsibility of every follower of Jesus Christ to be prepared to share the gospel with others. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 Here's Jesus right after his resurrection speaking to his disciples, and he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Friends, there is no such thing as a silent witness. A witness is someone who declares what he or she has seen. This is what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. It is to be a witness. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, believers, Christians, the message of reconciliation. See, this is a great picture of the gospel here. What Paul is saying is that God has sent Christ so that you and I, sinners estranged from God, can be reconciled to him. 
that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is possible to know that your trespasses against God will not be held against you. That's the good news, that God won't treat you as your sins deserve. And through faith in Christ, that can be true for you. That's the gospel. But what Paul says is, is that message has now been entrusted to you and to me. It's been delegated to us. We are messengers of grace. There's a passage from a book called Evangelism in the Early Church by a guy named Michael Green, and he's talking about the way the church grew in the first century. And certainly pastors and evangelists and missionaries were part of that, but, but here's what he says. The Christians went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought joy, release, and new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching. I mean, sometimes it was, and to a large degree it was formal preaching. But it was also the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. These are just ordinary untrained, non-ordained Christians bringing up the gospel in their everyday walks, walk through life. So, we're all called to evangelism, and I'm hoping that as we go through these seven principles, it will ease some of your fears and give you some direction about how you might uh, proceed in this way. I mean, it's just exciting to me to think, um, I don't know how many people I'll speak to this morning, maybe 300 people, to think if every one of those people decided to commit himself or herself to talking with one person about the gospel in the next few weeks or months, that would be 300 new people hearing the gospel, and who knows how many God would bring to faith. So two principles this morning, but first of all, just a little background here about Acts 17. Um, The book of Acts is the history of the early church. This is a historical document explaining how God grew the church immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot of information here about the missionary journeys of Paul. He was on three basic missionary journeys where he would preach the gospel and start new churches. And here in the middle of chapter 17, (coughs) Paul was with Luke and... um, no, with Silas and Timothy in a city called Berea, and uh, Paul left his friends there in Berea, went about 200 miles south to this city called Athens. And so in verse 16 of chapter 17, Paul is here in Athens, and he is all alone. He's by himself in this great city. Now, you might know something about Athens. Athens is a very famous city. It was known at the time as the intellectual capital of the ancient world. Uh, Some of the greatest philosophies, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, did a lot of their work centuries before in Athens. There was a rich history of art and literature and architecture in Athens. In fact, uh, this is a picture of the what's called the Parthenon. This was a temple that was devoted to the worship of a goddess called Athena. It was built, I think, four or five hundred years before the coming of Christ. That, that building still stands as you're seeing it in that picture. It's in ruins, but it still stands. Isn't that amazing to think that's the same place that the Apostle Paul would have seen in Athens 2,000 years ago? That's just an example of the kind of majestic, impressive structure that was all over the place 
uh, in this city. But as we get to verse 16 in Acts 17, we find that actually Paul is not that impressed. Um, You know, he could have gone to the Athens Visitor Bureau and got on the tour bus, I guess, and traveled around town and and looked at all the sites and, uh, you know, took the tours through all the museums and that kind of thing. But that's that's not what Paul did. If you look at verse 16... What we learn is that while Paul was waiting for them, again, that's uh, Silas and Timothy, it says his spirit was provoked within him. He was grieved. That's what the word provoked means. He was grieved. He He was indignant at what he was seeing in this city. And the reason that he was so grieved and so indignant was because the city, it says, was full of idols. Paul is grieved because idolatry is rampant in this city. There's shrines and altars and temples everywhere in this place. And in fact, there was a saying that went around that if you walked through Athens at this time, it was more likely that you would run into a god than that you would run into a person. That's how many shrines and altars were set up all around the city. Uh, and Paul is, is indignant and is, is grieved. And there's a, a little bit of a challenge here for us as to how we respond when we see the idolatry of our current culture. You know, it's just very easy it's just to look at it all with indifference. But it ought to be something that stirs us to some measure of grief and indignation, as is the case here with Paul. So the stage is set for... What is a very important evangelistic address that Paul is about to give to uh, the Athenians? And there is a lot here to teach us about how we can share the gospel in our current culture. It might surprise you to, to learn as we go through this series that that culture had a lot in common with this culture, separated by 2,000 years, a lot in common. And so it's from these passages here that we're going to look at these seven principles. So two principles today. The first principle as we seek to share gospel, is this. Principle one, always show respect. As you're uh, sitting there in Starbucks and somehow you get the conversation with someone, it starts to turn towards spiritual issues. That's happened to me more than once. You're at Thanksgiving dinner with family, cousins that you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, You're in class And uh, the discussion starts to move towards spiritual things, and eyes are turned towards you because people know you're a Christian, and you're on. And you're called upon to defend what you believe. Why are you a Christian? Here's the first thing to remember. Always show respect. Because there's that temptation when you're on the hot seat, you're feeling confronted and challenged to kind of lash out. But always show respect. What we're going to do is skip ahead to verse 22. We'll look at the verses following verse 16 later. But Paul preaches the gospel, and then he ends up being brought to this place called the Areopagus in verse 22. And um, the Areopagus is something that's kind of hard to explain because there's really no contemporary equivalent for the Areopagus, what it was. It was like a council, um, a court of very intellectual, philosophically-minded authorities in Athens, and they just gathered together to pronounce evaluations and judgments on philosophical, moral, and religious ideas. So the closest connection maybe 
might be to a university kind of setting. That's what this Areopagus is. It's a, it's a very prestigious group uh, regarded with great respect in Athens. And Paul is brought before this group, and he's called upon. He's called upon to explain why he believes what he believes. Now, look at what Paul's opening remark is here in verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, what is he doing here? I mean, I suppose Paul could be sarcastic here. Oh, I see you guys are really religious with all of your altars and shrines here. Wow, real religious people here in Athens. I mean, you know, is that the tone that he is striking here? I I don't think so. I mean, I would say the burden of proof would be on you to make that point. Um, We don't get any indication that there's any tension here between Paul and the Areopagus. There was some tension earlier, a few verses earlier, with a different group. But now Paul is before this again, very prestigious group. Uh, He doesn't want to alienate them. I mean, to begin with a sarcastic remark would just simply put off his audience. We don't get any hint of sarcasm in the rest of his address or anything else that he says here in in Athens. I just don't think there's any reason at all to conclude that he's being sarcastic or dismissive. What he's doing is he's complimenting these people. He's complimenting the Areopagus. Paul disagrees with their views. In fact, he is indignant with their views. He's grieved with what they believe, but he resists the temptation to launch into a shrill, argumentative discourse and instead offers them a compliment. He's showing them respect. That's what Paul is doing. He's showing respect with in line exactly with what we're commanded in 1 Peter 3. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. As we're talking to others about the gospel, we're called to respect those that we talk to. There's a lot of bad examples of that that maybe some of you can point to. Maybe some of you have been involved in that kind of thing. I remember when I was at Ball State uh, back in the 80s, there was a preacher who would come and set up right there at the scramble light and just start preaching to anybody who would walk by. And I understand the guy is still at it, actually, uh, 25 or so years later. But this guy would just stand up and insult as many people as he could. Uh, He would call the students names, he would be condescending, he would say they're miserable and wretched, he would look at girls wearing shorts and call them prostitutes, showed him no respect, would immediately alienate his audience, and the whole discussion just turned into this argument. Maybe a a better example, or one that a lot of you are familiar with, is the uh, Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas. And they make a habit of running around with their signs saying very demeaning things about homosexuals. They protest funerals for U.S. soldiers killed overseas saying that this is God's judgment on America for their view of homosexuality. I mean, showing no sensitivity and no respect whatsoever to grieving people. 
Uh, friends, that, that is unacceptable for a Christian and certainly is quite inconsistent with the tone that Paul is striking here with the Areopagus. He's showing them respect. No matter how much you disagree with someone that you're talking to, whether that person is an atheist or an agnostic or a pagan or a witch, or whether that person is homosexual or whether that person is a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, show the person respect. Talk to them in a gentle, respectful tone, no matter what they believe. I'll show you another example of that. Chapter 19 in the book of Acts. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they worshipped a goddess called Artemis. And in Acts 19... There is a description of what happens as Paul goes in and he starts preaching the gospel and people resist what Paul is saying and it says a riot breaks out over what Paul is saying. And some of Paul's companions are dragged out into the middle of the city. It's a violent, tense situation. Um, The town clerk of Ephesus steps forward and addresses the crowd and he quiets the crowd down after they'd been shouting, great is our goddess Artemis, for two straight hours. The town clerk steps in, and look what he says. Acts 19. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So here's a guy, he believes fully uh, in this goddess Artemis. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men, referring to Paul and his companions, you brought them here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He's taking note that even as Paul has been preaching in Ephesus about Jesus, that Paul was careful not to disrespect their religion. He didn't blaspheme the goddess Artemis. As we're evangelizing, particularly people who believe in false religions, we can affirm that a false religion is missing the central part, but we don't have to say that they're wrong on every part. I mean, we can show respect as we're talking to Muslims and Mormons. We can respect the fact that a Muslim, a typical Muslim, devotes himself to prayer three times a day. That's something to be respected. Or the fact that a Mormon will go door to door sharing their faith. I mean, they are eager to evangelize. That is something to be respected. We believe they're worshiping a false god, but we can respect to some level how they're observing their faith. It seems to be what Paul is doing here. He is not a blasphemer of the goddess Artemis. The biggest reason why we can respect people who disagree with us on religious and spiritual matters is because they are made in the image of God. They're crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8 says, no matter what they believe. And so they deserve not necessarily your agreement on everything they believe, but they deserve your respect. So when it comes to evangelism, I guess we can just break it down to this, the golden rule. You know, treat others as you want to be treated. So 
evangelize others as you would want to be evangelized. I mean, you might say, well, I don't want to be evangelized at all. Uh, well, you're pressing my argument too far. Uh, when you're talking to others, treat them as you would want to be treated. You don't want to be manipulated. You don't want to be tricked. You don't want to be lied to or coerced or harassed or nagged or scoffed at. You don't want someone treating you that way. So don't treat others that way. When you're sharing the gospel, show respect. Because the result, if you do those things, is that you will burn bridges. And that would just undo what is the second principle. Seek to build bridges. The second evangelistic principle. Seek to build bridges. Now notice how Paul does this. Verse 23, what we'll notice as he continues in his address of this Areopagus is that he does not search for what is wrong in their beliefs. First of all, he searches for what is right. He searches for a bridge to build. He searches for something that he has in common. So, what he says, verse 23, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. So here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, I've been looking around here in Athens. I've been seeing these altars. I see you have these objects of worship. And I see you have this altar set up to an unknown God. It's very interesting. That word for unknown is the Greek word from which we get our English word agnosticism. And agnosticism means basically without knowledge. So isn't that ironic that these Greeks who are supposed to know everything don't know the most important thing? They don't know who God is. They don't know how to be reconciled to him. They don't know how to have relationship with him. So Paul is addressing this. He is noticing this. And eventually Paul is going to get to the subject of Jesus. But isn't this interesting that he doesn't go there right away? He's not going to get to Jesus until the actual end of his address. And that's because he's setting things up here. He is seeking to build bridges. He's looking for points of connection with his audience before he gets to Jesus. I want to make a Clear, make it very clear here that the, the bridge that he is building here, the point of connection that Paul is finding is not this. When he says in verse 23, I found also this altar with an inscription to an unknown God and therefore uh, what you therefore worship. Paul is not saying here's what we have in common. Um, you worship your God in your way, and I worship my God in my way, and we all worship basically the same God because there's all these different ways to God, and so that's what we have all in common. You know, that's the very popular view in our culture today, and that's not the bridge that Paul is building here. He's not saying we're all worshiping the same God. The, the bridge that he's seeking to build is from the hunger for God that he sees in the people of Athens. He sees in them this longing for purpose, this desire to worship something. And what Paul says here is what you are now worshiping in ignorance, this desire that you have for worship that actually goes nowhere because you don't know who that is, I'm going to fill in the blanks for you so that you can see who you ought to be worshiping. So he's not commenting on their God, he's commenting here 
on their instinctive desire to worship. And this is the encouragement I want to give to you. As you talk to others about the gospel, you can be assured that you will always have that automatic connection with people because everybody has the same instinctive desire to know where they came from and why they're here on this earth. Everybody has that. That, That's the way we all are by virtue of being made in the image of God. The Bible says we are created in His image. We rebelled against Him. We sinned. That interrupted our fellowship with God. And ever since then, all of us have been longing to have that relationship reconnected. That's why Paul says it's the ministry of reconciliation. We all have an instinctive desire to be brought back into fellowship with our God. Everybody is in that same boat. But because of sin and because of the results of the fall, everybody is holding down that instinct. They're suffocating it. That's what Paul says here in in Romans 1. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Everybody knows God has made it very clear that He exists. It's declared through the created order. Everybody has this instinctive knowledge, but they're holding it down. They're suppressing it. They're hoping it'll go away some way. And when you share the gospel with people, you're seeking to tap into that longing. You're seeking to wake people up to what is going on in their soul. As an example of this, um, there's a movie called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's about um, this couple who fall in love and they have this great relationship. And eventually the relationship goes sour. And they get very angry at each other. They can't stand each other. And so they decide to go to a memory clinic and have their memories of each other erased. And, and it works. And so they have no memory of each other. But then in the movie, we find that they actually meet again later. And they're immediately drawn to each other. And they have this connection again. And one of them kind of says, don't I know you from somewhere and the other person's not quite sure. But they're brought together again. Even though they tried to erase their memories of each other, they couldn't do it. They just couldn't get away from that instinctive longing. It was like they were made to be together, and they couldn't deny it. And that's the way every person is, created in the image of God. They're trying to erase their memories. They're trying to hold down the knowledge of who they are, created in God's image, but they can't do it. And when you talk to people about the gospel, eventually that's going to bubble up. It's going to rise up to the surface. That's a bridge upon which you can build. Before you even get to the subject of Jesus, you've got to awaken in them this knowledge that they are made for a purpose and that there is a God with whom they need relationship. They need sins forgiven, and only Jesus can do that. Let me share with you another example. I saw this. Uh, article in the New York Times, and um, it's called Coveting Luke's Faith, and it's written by a woman named Dana Tierney, and um, she starts by saying how she's a very literal-minded person, 
And she says, it's for that reason that I am unable to believe in God. And she says, uh, most other atheists I know, they seem to feel very proud of their unbelief as if they have refused to be sold snake oil. But she says, I've come to feel that I'm missing out. She says, my friends and relatives who rely on God, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, they have an expansiveness of spirit. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. And she goes on to describe this situation, this story. She's married. She has a, a four-year-old son. son's name is, is Luke, and her husband is in Iraq and had been away for several months. <clears throat> and one night, uh, Dana and her son are watching TV. And on the TV comes this story about a soldier who's talking about getting ready to go back over to Iraq himself. And the soldier talks about how afraid he was to go back and how dangerous he knew it was over there. And so he's expressing this fear. And here's this woman and her four-year-old son, and they're watching this. <clears throat> and the woman looks out of the corner of her eyes, and she sees her son steeple his fingers and bow his head for a split second. And surprised, she says, sweetheart, what are you doing? She's kind of alarmed at this and uh, has a, a short conversation with her son. And she sums it up and she says, I was envious of him, this atheist. Luke wasn't rattled because he believed that God would bring his father home safely. I was the only one stranded. She goes on. She asks Luke, when did you first begin to believe in God? He says, I don't know. I've always known that he exists. And then she concludes the article <clears throat> by saying this, for Luke, all things are possible. At the end of his life, he will be reunited in heaven with his heroes and loved ones, mom and dad and George Washington, his grandparents, and Buzz Lightyear. I'm not saying this is theologically accurate in every place, okay? <clears throat> but then she says, Luke's prayers can stretch to infinity and beyond, but I am limited to one. Help my unbelief. Here is an atheist with the honesty to admit that she's got a hunger for God. She, she wants to believe. She wants to have relationship with God. She wants her sins forgiven. She wants to have purpose in her life. She has a hunger to know God. And that really is what evangelism is. It's just one beggar telling another where to get bread. And so when we talk to people about the gospel, you, you can know, you can have that assurance that somewhere lurking underneath, there, there's that latent instinct for people to believe. And there's a bridge there that we can build. So here's my suggestion to you today, uh, or for this week. Just think of, of one person to begin with. Just get one person in your mind. Maybe God has already put somebody in your mind and heart as you've been listening to this today. Just a person who doesn't know Christ, someone in your family maybe, someone at work, someone at school, classmate, maybe a neighbor. And you've just, you think about this person, and you've always had that kind of just that sense, that compelling inkling that you ought to talk to this person about the gospel. 
uh, start praying for that person. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to go knock on their door this week. Just, just pray. Okay, just start by praying. Ask that the Holy Spirit would work on that person's heart and begin to awaken in that person this hunger that is there. Pray that God would open a door. Pray that God would give you the right words to say. And then proceed with faith and watch and wait. See what God does. Watch for him to to open that opportunity. Show that person respect Uh, Seek to build bridges and be ready to declare that God does not have to be unknown. That through Jesus, God can be known. That by putting faith in what Jesus has done and shedding his blood and being raised from the dead, we can know him. We can know him. And not just as God, but as Father, as Savior, as friend. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would help us as a congregation to be very eager to open our mouths to declare your praises. Lord, we confess we're, we're scared. It makes us uncomfortable. Often it feels awkward. Um, but we believe, Lord, you've called us to do it. So open our mouths, O oh Lord, and through our witness, bring many to saving faith in your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.